This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Tom Martin, President and CEO of the American Forest Foundation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Farmer-owned co-ops include millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers, who own and run co-ops. They're responsible for companies that feed the world and create jobs both on and off the farm. Learn more at ncfc.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Tom Martin next. The National Council of Farmer Cooperatives is the voice of America's farmer cooperatives. These farmer-owned co-ops are comprised of millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers. They own and run co-ops and are responsible for companies that feed the world and create hundreds of thousands of jobs, both on and off the farm. To learn more about how farmer-run co-ops keep the future bright for America and agriculture, visit ncfc.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Despite contrary opinion, families and individuals own the most of the nation's forest base. 80,000 landowners manage over 20 million acres of American tree farms, and Tom Martin, president and CEO of the American Forest Foundation, says those acres provide countless benefits to consumers across the country. We get so much from forests. Half of Americans get their drinking water that it's been filtered through a forested landscape. 80 to 85 percent of the terrestrial at-risk species in the wildlife arena spend time on it. 15 percent of the annual carbon emissions in this country get sucked up by trees. It's a million good-paying rural jobs that they support. And so you look at all that and you say, holy smokes, that's a lot of things. And the truth is, not one single forest type provides all of it. And we need to be sure that our forests have a diversity of age classes, that it has a diversity of species that are there to support all of those things. And often that takes active management. There's a lot of invasive species that have moved in. There's bugs that will eat trees. And in both those cases, if you're not actively managing your land, if you're not removing a diseased tree, it can spread. Catastrophic fire risk. You know, we've seen that sadly across the country this year. If people aren't working to make their landscape more resilient against catastrophic fire, they're at risk of losing it all. So, There are real strong reasons for all of us to have a stake in landowners being clear about what they want to accomplish on their land and then actively managing to make that dream come true. There might be a perception when you hear a forest and woodland, you're primarily talking about a Western issue, but this is really a nationwide issue. Yeah, it really is. You see it, for instance, one of the ways we do our work is we say, all right, where is it that family landowners, these woodland owners, can really make a difference on the landscape. And we'll concentrate our work there. So we looked at the West, and we looked at a bunch of data, and we tried to figure out what what they could make a difference on. And we overlaid high-risk for catastrophic wildfire maps with critical drinking watershed maps. And it turns out that even in a state like California, where we think of the Yosemites being the big kahuna land, 50% of those lands are private. And so if California wants to protect its drinking water supply, wants to keep its uh, forest more resilient against the kind of mortality that they've experienced from bugs and fire, getting those people to the table, helping them figure out what they can do to make their place more resilient, 
that's that's an important kind of uh, approach to all of this. Talk about the economics of the timber industry. We know that the agricultural side with corn, soybeans, cattle, and hogs have been tremendously cyclical over the past few years. So for all the things forest products, cyclical would imply a biorhythm that you can predict. You can't with this. We're deeply dependent on housing starts for markets uh, to be able to support landowners' active management of their land. And so those markets, they've seen a decline. You've got secular long-term decline in the use of some types of paper. That means there's fewer pulp and paper mills than there used to be. There hasn't been a new one built in decades in the U.S. So you're seeing changes in the markets as well as downward pressure and with lower housing starts, less use of some kinds of paper. You spent some time over the past week with your members in Washington in the closing hours of the lame duck session. What were your priorities? So there were a bunch of priorities. and The first one is there's this strange way in which we treat fighting fires in this country and uh, catastrophic wildfires. You know, we sure expect the U.S. Forest Service to get out there and work with our state agencies and our local uh, first responders when there's a wildfire to come in and help ensure that it doesn't do uh, a lot of damage to communities or the place in Tennessee where people actually are killed. We expect them to come in and do that. But the way the system's set up is the Forest Service is supposed to cover it out of its existing budget. But the length of fire season and the severity of fire season is increasing very quickly. So they use a 10-year rolling average to try and set that budget number, and in recent years, it's invariably too little. When that happens, the Forest Service says, stop, wait, we're not going to spend any money on prevention. We're not going to spend any money on technical assistance. We're not going to spend it on conservation. We're going to reprogram all that money to fight fires until Congress reimburses us a few weeks or months down the road. What that does is you're a forest manager, right? You're trying to figure out how can I create a healthier, more resilient forest out here, and how can I help my private neighbors do that? So some of it you do directly through management intervention. Some of it you do through funding your neighbors to do good stuff. But suddenly the call comes out, and it's like, whoop, stop doing that. We need your money to fight fires. And, yeah, that's a high priority, and we ought to do it. But we ought to have a system that treats wildfire like the kind of natural disaster it is. You know, if it's a hurricane or it's a flood, the money comes out of a disaster response fund. And, yes, fires happen every year, so we should build into the budget some base of funding, you know, to be able to fight those fires. But above and beyond that, it ought to come from the disaster fund so that we can do the long-term work of keeping our forests healthy and productive. Could you go just a step deeper into when those funds are taken away from existing programs? What programs are then sacrificed, and, and how does that affect the health of the land? Yeah, so it actually starts at the beginning of the fiscal year. Uh, you know, the Forest Service uh, has a model, and they're pretty good at predicting what kind of a, a fire season they'll have even months in advance. And so often, even at the beginning of the year, they'll go to their senior managers and say, gang, we think it's going to be a bad fire year. Uh, you need to be very careful about making any financial commitments early in the year. And what that does is, in a bad fire year, it moves a year's worth of work in partnership 
to the end of the year in a short period of time. So instead of thinking through, you know, what's our long-term approach here, how are we going to develop this, create the right kind of impact on the ground, thin this forest, remove those diseased trees, give some grant to a state forestry agency to help work with us on a project, that stuff gets put on hold. And so the partners are sitting, waiting, not knowing what's going to happen. That kind of ethic does a couple of things. First, it pulls money from programs to thin or to remove the bugs and those kinds of things. But secondly, it creates a sense of disillusionment among the Forest Service professional personnel and their partners that, well, yeah, we can commit to doing this together, but we all know that, you know, if we have a bad fire season, all of our plans may get jerked here. And, you know, for in cities, um, the urban tree program that the Forest Service has helped do to restore tree cover in our urban areas, you know, those funds, you know, hold it. Can't spend that right now. So it's got a cascading impact all across the country on urban forests as well as the wild forests or the uh, rural forests that uh, people uh, think about. We might say on other farms across the country that conservation and sustainability are tied to profitability. I know you were also asking for some guidance from the EPA. I don't care if you're an ag row crop or a rancher or you're a family forest owner. Your ability to actively manage your land is dependent upon having good markets to be able to sell wood. It's even tougher, frankly, in a lot of ways for family forest owners because you've got annual costs. But it's every 12 or so years that we actually get any income coming off our land. So if we don't have good markets at the point at which we're selling some of our trees, all of those accrued costs are coming out of our pocket. It's negative cash flow to us, and the land has to be able to pay for itself over time. So having markets that allow us to sell, you know, where I'm from, it would be veneer markets for furniture. Uh, It would be pulp markets for some of my other trees. So those kinds of things are really important in ensuring that we got a market for each part of the tree. It seemed as though you were asking for the EPA to make preference for some markets from the American tree farm system. Yeah, one of the things that's happened in recent years, and you've seen it in the ag world too, but in the forestry world, is a set of international standards that say, we can assure that this wood has been sustainably grown and harvested. And so there are international certification standards of quality. The American tree farm system works to those internationally uh, recognized standards of quality. And there are competing systems that are out there that also work with family landowners. We actually think that's a good thing. I think that holds us all accountable by having competing systems. But what's happened is that... Most federal agencies say, we'll recognize all those systems. They're all credible. They're all doing a good job. But there's some strange thing that popped up in EPA where they want to pick one system over another. And we don't think that's healthy because the outcomes on the ground are deeply, deeply similar. There's very little difference in the outcomes on the ground. Yet EPA wants to, for whatever reason, pick one system over another 
we don't think that's healthy. We think what's healthy is, you know, good competition between systems who can show results and show that you can sustain the economic value of the land and sustain the uh, conservation value of the land. Let's turn thoughts now toward 2017, a new administration and a new Congress. One of the thoughts might be if there could actually be corporate tax reform, uh, actually could there be reform on other areas of the tax system, including the estate tax. There's some proposals from the IRS that might be a challenge for uh, some crop and livestock farmers, but also for forest landowners as well. Yeah, tax reform offers some opportunities and some dangers, I think, for woodland owners. And you just referenced a proposed change from the IRS for how they would value a portion of ownership in an estate. So my sister and I own our land together. If I should die, my estate's ability to sell my half is pretty limited. There's really only one person who'd be interested in buying it. would be my sister. And that diminishes the value of the land. The IRS wants to say, no, 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 let's count that partial interest at full market value, highest, best use kind of thing when, in fact, that's just not how it's going to happen. And I think for anybody who has multi-generational kinds of ownerships, whether it's in farmland, ranch land, uh, small businesses, or family forest land, that could do a lot to force sales of things, could uh, cause the breaking up of land, conversion to other uses. And so uh, that's a real danger, and I think the Hill was very aware of that. But there are some other things that could really hurt us. You know, growing trees is a long-term proposition. In my part of the world, in Wisconsin, it's 60 to 80 years before trees reach their maturity. I can't imagine a more clear case for a long-term capital gain. But there have been some talking about wanting to treat that income after 60 or 80 years when you harvest as straight income, for which the uh, tax rate is much, much higher, and frankly will mean that a lot of folks can't afford to keep their land in force. The second kind of thing uh, we look at that's an opportunity is casualty loss. Hurricane comes through, knocks down your trees. If you're a family landowner, you can take a casualty loss only on the amount that you could document you put into that land, the planning, the site preparation, that kind of stuff. What you can't do is if you've got 40 years of growth there, you can't take that value out. And let's face it, that's where the real economic value is. That means their ability to remove all the dead trees, um, to plant new ones, to do that kind of stuff is a much higher cost to them than it would be if from a casualty basis they could deduct more of what was lost and allow them to replant more quickly. I'd say the final thing for forests that you worry about is there are a couple of tax provisions that were set up 25 years ago, roughly. And one's a real estate investment trust, the other's timber improvement management organizations. Both of them allow a very tax-efficient way to hold forest land. When they made the change 25 years ago, all the big forest products companies own land. Well, they divested it because it was more efficient to keep those lands in these special tax provisions. So what happened, though, is when they sold the land, it got broken into smaller pieces. A bunch of it got converted. So you have forests that became more fragmented, became more parcelized. That makes it much harder to manage, and it makes those benefits we get from forests diminished. 
if they make another tax change, it's going to drive more forest loss, more forest parcelation, just because people will respond to a new set of tax structures, and you'll see a change in ownership, I believe, from many of these things. So all of those things are important in the tax world for us. Tom, it appears now that a number of commodity groups are already doing some advanced work on the Farm Bill, and the leadership in the House and the Senate Agriculture Committees have mentioned ramping up efforts toward new farm policy as we move through 2017. Uh, conservation, uh, a big area of this legislation and very important to forest owners. Absolutely. We, in the past couple of Farm Bills, have convened something called the Forest and the Farm Bill Coalition. And the idea is to try and get together um, all of the organizations who care about the uh, conservation provisions of the Farm Bill to see if we can come to the same page on what are the things that are most effective and in the next iteration of the Farm Bill, are there some things that we can do to improve? And so we have conservation groups at the table. We have uh, state agencies at the table. We have companies at the table, all of whom are looking for common ground here. It's co-chaired with the National Wild Turkey Federation, the National Association of State Foresters, and the Nature Conservancy, and all of us look at this stuff together. So as we look at this new farm bill, you know, we're still in the early days of uh, talking with the folks on the Hill about what their expectations are for the coming bill, but there are a couple of principles that I think are pretty important to us. One is the farm bill is a place that helps recognize the importance of private landowners to conservation in this country. And we ought to think about that in relationship to the public lands that are there as well. We look at an all-lands kind of policy, and there's a real incentive in the Farm Bill for the agencies to work with private landowners, set good measurable goals for how we can improve conservation, and work across ownership. Now, that doesn't mean the federal government telling landowners what to do. What it means is setting goals jointly for a landscape and having the Fed say, I'm going to do this on our land that we manage, but then having the family landers say, well, my goal is A or B or C, and here's what I can contribute toward that in a measurable kind of way, and create incentives for them to do that kind of work. So for us, that's a key kind of concept in the in the upcoming Farm Bill. A program is only as good as its funding. Are there areas that you would look for dollars and cents, and how do you balance Title I and crop insurance and conservation? You know, I, it's a tough deal. And as you know, I think the Farm Bill is now, what, 75% dealing with food assistance kinds of issues. And we think it's just about farming. Yeah, but the conservation piece is, is pretty small in the Farm Bill. So as we think about Farm Bill programs, there are, uh, you know, one in particular that we'll be looking at in the appropriations process this year uh, is the Forest Stewardship Program. It's a terrific partnership between the federal agencies and state foresters to work with family landowners and help them be better stewards of their land. They work closely with us in our tree farm program, and the states put skin in the game as well. That's been a really important way for us to have an impact on the landscape against fire against bugs, to help provide clean water, those kinds of things. 
And so we're hoping that when they move from the CR to an appropriations bill, that we're looking more to $29 million kind of appropriations level. That would be up significantly from where they are now. We think that that will leverage the kind of state commitments and, frankly, private sector commitments that are going to let us go at some of these tough issues like we've seen in the fires in Tennessee or the billion trees that have been killed by bugs in California. How important to have the coalition of producer and conservation and nutrition to bring this legislation across the line? You know, if you think about what you need to have a sustainable, long-term commitment to farm and food policy and to the family forest hunting policy, I think that coalition provides a long-term base of support and shared interests sometimes shared values, and yeah, sometimes some competition. But having all those together provides a steady base of uh, support going forward. But if we start making our farm and nutrition policy and our forest policies veer wildly from one thing to another, i got to tell you, particularly for forest owners who make multi-generational bets every time they plant a tree, that will end up being a disaster. If you, You're willing to take a flyer on the market, but if the policies are changing all the time, I think you'll see more families convert their land to other uses, and that would be a loss for all Americans. Well, Tom Martin, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and Tom, you have an open forum. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate your help with that, and um, it's been good uh, talking with you. Our thanks to Tom Martin, President and CEO of the American Forest Foundation, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Farmer-owned co-ops include millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers, who own and run co-ops. They're responsible for companies that feed the world and create jobs both on and off the farm. Learn more at ncfc.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Allen.